Yo, kids, this is Nick the Tooth, and today I am joined by my co-host and publisher of the Infinite Worlds magazine, Winston Ward. Dude, what is going on? Good to talk again. It's been a couple weeks, and I know, once again, there have been tectonic shifts in both of our lives. Uh, tell us what has happened in your life first. Yeah. <laughs> if you listen to the last episode, I was living in a big house with my whole family, waiting it out to move to Colorado Springs, but got ended up getting a uh, apartment right in downtown Denver. Dude, so basically you're living like a pimp ass lifestyle right now, is what you're saying. Because I saw, I saw pictures of it, and the wind looked amazing. <laughs> your place looked rad. It is. It's a real trip. When we moved, planned to move to Colorado initially, we were like, oh, let's try to find a place that's kind of, you know, farmhouse-y. That was our goal. Time's getting short. We got to pick a place. And then we had a friend be like, look, if you need a place to move to Colorado so you can become a Colorado resident and do all those things, here's a spot you can get. And they hooked us up with it. LJ, shout out to LJ. And we just took the place sight unseen and then got drove 20 hours Got here and it's like a huge loft apartment. It's a two bedroom. We got really hooked up. Yeah, it's really cool. Like they're they're cool about our dogs. Okay, well, my question now is, tell me about the culture shock because you're oh, coming man. from the deep south in Atlanta, in Georgia, and now you are in, on West Coast where you know weed is legal. I mean, it is just progressive as. It Yet. On my podcast, I make it official. I have left Georgia behind. I moved to Colorado. I want to be here. It's all sorts of people with all sorts of highs and lows and demons and angels all around. <laughs> it's real great for people watching. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, I went to a dispensary today. Uh-huh. It's cool to be able to go buy pot legally and just be able to just smoke. <laughs> <laughs> right? To be an adult. Like, hey, you can be an adult. You can do what you want with your life. Oh my gosh. And I'm one of those people that may have been doing it illegally. I won't confess that. And so this isn't used against me. If it's good enough for Carl Sagan, it's good enough for me. Oh my gosh. Come on. Yeah, exactly. I saw a kid walking down 16th Street and he just was smoking a full-on bong. He was just holding it, smoking it. <laughs> You know, a big 14-inch glass song. Oh, I was just watching him go by while I was on my uh, bus, and I was just like, look at this guy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Toto, we are not in freaking Georgia anymore, right? Definitely not, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we we were recording the podcast, you know, three, four, five months ago when I just started renovating the band. And now I'm in the van. You know what I mean? (laughs) We've given up the condo and we are just out on the road and the van has become our home. It's almost like a spaceship, you know, where we just travel the different planets and they're so different. They're so alien, you know, going from Morro Bay in California, where we really started, which is just a couple of hours north of LA, which was beautiful, a massive rock in the middle of the ocean. And camped there and surfed and that kind of started it. And then we went up Big Sur then we went up to the Redwoods and we would just stay for three, four days until we were like, you know what? Time to go, time to go. So now we find ourselves up in Northern Oregon. We ended up coming up to the smallest town. It's called Seaside, Oregon. It's on the border of Washington. It's right on the ocean. Mm. A friend recommended these two guys who have a jujitsu gym. And this town is so small. There's 6,000 people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is as small as it gets, right? It's a pretty small town. 
but they have a great jujitsu gym. There's no cases at all of COVID or anything up here. So it's like this weird little That's bubble. And so we got here and I met the guys, the Adamson brothers, and my wife really got along with uh, one of their wives. And so they're out shopping right now and doing their thing in the little town wearing masks. Winston, it was so weird how in Northern California, people were refusing to wear masks. And then once we started getting up in the middle of Oregon, everybody's wearing masks. It was weird how there's like this political shift. It's very frustrating. So I've been doing jujitsu here, which is great. Being able to surf, it's freezing, like ice picks through your hands. And I think I've rebuilt my guitar three times. <laughs> Completely stripped it, resoldered all the insides. I didn't even need to do it. I just was like, I didn't even get a new project. But you know what, though? This is kind of a last thing on the catch up, which is really cool that I learned. My favorite guitarist in the world is Jimi Hendrix. Oh, and job. he was a sci-fi fanatic. The song Purple Haze is all about a sci-fi story of aliens coming to Earth and all this shit, dude. You know, I listened to it, his greatest hits over and over and over and over again when I was a kid. <sighs> I know Mobius did some illustrations of Hendrix, but dude, I'm going to investigate this a little bit more. Did you know that? Did you know he was a sci-fi fanatic? No, Not I, even I, like sci-fi, like, oh, it's kind of cool. It was like his life. He awesome. lived for sci-fi. Maybe we'll do an episode on Jimi Hendrix. That would be pretty cool. Oh, that would be so cool. You know what also is cool, though, is that Hendrix, kind of a, it became like really a civil rights icon and it coincided it happened his rise to fame was right at the same time as star trek right, right. 1966 star trek's the original series started roddenberry hendrix i mean what an amazing time in sci-fi history that was an excellent segue that might be like an all-time top <laughs> Five segue. <laughs> we're we're going to have to give awards for the <laughs> segue of the year. Before we start the show, we should definitely start with the word. I think any Star Trek voyage should start with, and I think you should say it. Engage. dude i'm so stoked to be back recording another episode and not just any episode but my favorite franchise of all time or at least one of them star trek this is going to be a good one you know this has been a big inspiration to me since i was a little kid there's so many themes of this one there's so much to hit on that it's going to be a lot to process so we might be a little uh kind of all over the place with this one but bear with us uh this is definitely some really interesting subject matter to delve into so yeah it's so deep i mean we're talking about star trek which not only did was Roddenberry who we're first going to talk about not only was he just such a pivotal figure um, in the 60s and 70s but uh, you know Star Trek went on to just became a franchise with comic books with action figures with movies with TV series multiple TV series um, just spanning 50 60 years so um, as you allude to at some point here in the episode it's took on like a religious quality yeah Religious quality, no no two ways about it. A cultural icon type quality. I, yeah, I'm so excited about that. So everybody, we're probably going to, I know we're probably going to run over on this one. So let's do two parts, man. Let's just plan on it, Winston. Let's do two parts, okay, two parts. for Star Trek. And so we'll, well, let's take this first episode all the way up from the original series. We will go through the movies of the uh, Kirk era. And then we'll go into um, the next generation. And after that, we'll kind of get into Voyager and what goes on, you know, maybe in part two. 
sounds great. The, the maybe the Abram JJ Abrams movies and uh, talk about some like cool drug experiences. You know, <laughs> if you guys are interested, that is how breathtaking freaking Star Trek is. It's just gonna it just brings you into the universe, and before you know it, you don't know where you are. So we'll start with just a little bit of history mm-hmm. background on the show. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm really excited to do this episode because one of the very first things that I felt like I really, really, really liked was Star Trek, the next generation. And I was eight or nine years old and my mom liked the show. And I remember watching it and being like, man, this is the real shit right here. And being terrified of the Borg, everything about it, just really capturing my imagination to the max. And I know that you are just a huge fan too. You've told me before that this was your favorite show or among your favorite shows. Isn't that right? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And and The Next Generation was, you know, perhaps one of my favorite television series ever. My wife and I still just jump on Netflix and just throw on Next Generation. You watch it, you're like, oh man, everything is right with the world. You know what I mean? It's so fun and so thought provoking. But for me, it started when I was very, very, very young in kindergarten. I'll never forget this. In like, I had to wear my V-neck t-shirt because that matched the uniforms that like Kirk and Spock wore on the original series. And the original series, that was filmed and ended like before I was born. But Star Trek, it went through. We'll talk about that. Yeah. I think right now, the thing that I'm most fascinated about because Because the Star Trek, the whole galaxy is so massive. The whole program is so big. It spans 50 years almost. It does span 50 years. Yeah. 60 years. I'm most fascinated about Roddenberry. I mean, here's a guy who creates something that is almost a religion. People, they don't only become so obsessed with every single property that comes out of it, from comic books to movies to TV series to action figures. And I've had all these things. A fandom Second to none, I would say. Second to none. And they even learn the language, right? Right, yeah. It's crazy. Of Klingons. Who learns Klingon? In nerd <laughs> culture, I think Star Trek fans are kind of thought of as being the most obsessed of the fans. Yeah. Being the most captivated by the show than their counterparts. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reason for that. <laughs> I think, like you said, Rodberry created nearly a religion. In fact, you watch Futurama. Oh, yeah. There's a great course. Futurama episode where Star Trek basically becomes a religion and then it gets outlawed. Yes. It kind of takes on this same sort of idea. Roddenberry, the guy who created it. Yeah, so this guy, this is the son of a cop born in Texas in uh, 1921. Pretty normal guy, normal kid. And he ends up serving in World War II. And he's a pilot, goes on a ton of dangerous missions, gets awarded a bunch of medals, is basically a World War II hero, low-key hero. You know, if you're one of those people who define hero as somebody who goes and makes war, Mm -hmm. it's a very complex moral question. So, you know, I just leave it at that. But Mm -hmm. he went and did that thing and was super awesome at it, apparently. Mm -hmm. Then he came back. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Then he came back, became a cop with the LAPD. He applied to be a police officer with the LAPD. And I guess he was just used to the uniform. He was a traffic cop for several years, for about three years. And then he got reassigned to writing speeches and writing the newsletter and kind of basically being a writer for the police. And when he was doing that, that's when he started writing scripts. And he got a couple of scripts handed around. He ended up getting a show produced called The Lieutenant in 1963 and 1964, right before Star Trek. And then he pitched Star Trek to Desilu Productions because Desilu Productions, that's the production company run by Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz from I Love Lucy. Wow. Yeah. So Lucille Ball, 
was probably the first TV mogul that was a lady and she was a boss. Even her dating Desi Arnaz, you know, normally I would think in that time frame would have been a little bit more of a hindrance to her and being married to him because, you know, he was a Latin guy and mixed race stuff was real problematic for TV back in the day. Anyway, she actually saved Star Trek, Lucille Ball did. So quick side note on that before we get. Further. Wow. I had no idea. That's Crazy. He pitches this show. He bases it on this Western that's on at the time. And it's basically about them exploring the frontier. And he's like, oh, space frontier. And he basically pitches the show that way to Desilu Studios. And the board of directors of Desilu are like, no, I don't think so. That sounds like a pretty expensive production. We're not really interested in that. And Lucille Ball vetoed them and made them produce a pilot. And they did. And they made this pilot episode called The Cage, which is featured pretty much entirely different Enterprise crew than the one everybody became familiar with. Except for Spock. Spock was the only actor who moved on to the next. So I, I think that's, there might've been some, a few other actors. I think I read that. It was just him. I thought I had read that too. The original incarnation of the show was even more progressive minded. It had the first officer was female and the head of engineering or some other high ranking officer on the crew was also female. And they were on the away team initially. Okay. He somehow, at some point, Gene Roddenberry went from the kind of guy who was in the air battles in World War II and then being a cop to, to writing this show show about real progressive and thought-provoking concepts in the future. And that, when you look at it that way, when you look at how he went from that immediate background to writing Star Trek, I personally think it really speaks to what Star Trek's strength is. And it is the strength of showcasing hope for a bright future in the midst of our current situation being so worrisome. Yeah. Especially now. I think that really, really, really rings true now because things just look so bad. When you're looking at Facebook, you're like, oh man, this does not look great. But Star Trek gives you hope that we're going to pull it together, that people are going to start cooperating. They're going to start listening to the values that make human beings successful, being reasonable, charitable, and kind, and all of the things that I think Starfleet tries to represent on the show. What's fascinating to me just about what you said, because I didn't know that much about Roddenberry. What I find so intriguing about him is this is obviously a guy who had a tremendous amount of confidence For sure. to switch lanes like that and to say, okay, I was in the military. Now I'm going to do this. And now I'm going to totally switch gears and I'm going to just start writing scripts. And then I'm going to switch gears from writing scripts about X to something that's never been seen on television, some space drama like Star Trek. I think he also was someone who obviously, and I'm just projecting, but probably just didn't give a shit what people thought about. And I love that. I love that we have characters. Truth to that too. I've read some and okay, here's another thing about Star Trek before I go any further is that Star Trek also has the most notorious fandom in terms of being pedantic, meaning that if somebody says something about a show or they think they know more about the show than somebody who's talking about it, they get very defensive of it. And this is definitely not true of all Star Trek fans by any means, but the fanship has developed that sort of reputation. And I just like to say, if you're listening, knock that stuff off, guys, man, that's not cool. Nerd culture. Don't be like that. Try to, you know, let new fans in, no matter who they are. <laughs> not that either of us are new fans, but don't be gatekeepers of fan culture. That's not a good look. Humans can be so tribal. It's like, yeah. ah, this is my tribe and you don't belong to it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, come on. 
I've watched a lot of Star Trek in my life, but there are a lot of episodes of Star Trek spread across the various, uh, how many, seven series now at this point. That's a lot of episodes of Star Trek, and I have not watched all of them. And I go ahead and say that pretty upfront, you know, so if you're hoping for a podcast show host that loves Star Trek to the point where they can tell you every single thing about Star Trek. Nick, is that what's going on with you? Are you like an insight? No. No, okay. Absolutely not. No, and, and you know, it's interesting because as I was looking to the catalog of all things Star Trek, I was like, holy shite. I had the original toys. I'm as OG as it gets, but right. I never learned Klingon. You know what I mean? I mean, sorry. There's nothing wrong with learning Klingon. It's pretty cool that you spent the time to learn Klingon, but you do have it. People have to pick and choose how they spend their time. And some people might not. No, I think we're lovers of sci-fi. I don't think, and in that we're more generalists in that respect. Yes. It's hard to say, oh, I know everything about Star Wars and Star Trek and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Exactly. So, you know, forgive us if we miss some crucial detail or we get something wrong. You know, obviously you can leave a comment and let us know that we didn't do it right, but. Absolutely. Roddenberry obviously didn't give a shit what people thought about him. I think that's such an amazing character trait because I've been thinking about this a lot. We live in a society where other people try online to check people. Like, what are you doing? What are you do? I even got some of that when I was doing the band thing. People were like, what are you doing? Blah, blah. Now everybody's like, holy shit, man, right. hold it off. You know what I mean? Now everybody's like, man, I'm jealous. But these are people who are saying to me, oh, you're crazy. You're never going to finish the band. You're never gonna... I'm like, motherfucker, what are you talking about? You know I'm going to finish this band. If you know anything about me, this band is getting finished and I'm going on the road. So, no, I love that. I think he's a kindred spirit. And maybe that's where that adventurous spirit for the series came from. These dudes and chicks are just going to go off into space and who knows what's going to happen. Right. I think that's rad. It's boldly going where no man... Originally, no man has gone before and Next Gen redid the beginning to say no one has gone before. Anyways, let's go into the original series. Okay. I was such a fanatic, like I said, for the original series. What was crazy was that later in life, I learned that the original series was a complete failure. Right. Like I said, it started in 66 and that was when segregation and civil rights and there was so much freaking upheaval within the country that probably, like you were saying, you're alluding to mirrors what we're dealing with today. But at the time, it was such a failure that it only ran for three years. They only had three seasons and 79 episodes. But they actually tried to cancel it after a single season, and it was only because of a, an organized mail letter writing campaign saved wow. the show. They were getting ready to cancel it. So it actually almost only went one season. Damn. That's another thing that Star Trek is known for is just having a run and then dying out and then just getting reborn again over and over and over again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, it started in 66. And what was so cool is Roddenberry was just so astute and so keyed into what was happening in society that. He was like, okay, we're in the middle of the shit right now. Right. I'm going to create a series, which is in 2260, which is three centuries in the future. And by that point, it's going to be a utopia. And that's one of the reasons they had such an integrated cast. I mean, one of the first black women ever as an actress, an Asian and Vulcan, and Scottish. And it was just such a mixed bag. America at the time was at war with the USSR. Just having a Russian character on the bridge in Chekhov was pretty controversial all by itself. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine? The show pushed the boundaries in that respect, too. It didn't just posture by having a diverse cast. It went full force. 
it took on social issues like racism extremely head on as yeah. head on as you could possibly do. And you know, sexism and nationalism. Oh, absolutely. The horrors of war. Absolutely. Kind of like echoes of Vonnegut, right? I've served in the military and now I'm going to tell you what it's really like. It's no picnic and this bullshit that they're feeding you about nationalism. It's brainwashing. Yeah. I, I love how, once again, we here we come upon it where sci-fi is at the forefront of political movements. I think it's incredible. I think if you're studying the future, you tr- obviously you want to try to aim for the best possible future. And, you know, you just kind of have to look at the current situation and be like, well, what needs to improve to get to that next thing? And everybody getting along as best we can and living together and working together is just got to be one of those improvements, man. Come on. Yeah. But the thing is, Winston, is that if you look at the modern trend of sci-fi and even before that, but really the modern trend is towards dystopia. Oh, yeah. Exactly. I feel like Star Trek carries the torch of Utopia nearly all by itself. It's only even able to do that because the various crews are always beset by dramatic danger. There's always the Borg or the Romulans or some scary bad guy that makes the show exciting. Most serious Star Trek fans, I think, like the show for its thought-provoking writing and its teaching moments. It's a very enriching show, but it needs the, the action too, you know? It's true. And you really just made me think of something. It's so brilliant of an, of an insight that you have is that really the show is utopian ideas tested in conflict, right? right? Absolutely. Utopian ideals and we're going to pit them against racism and we're going to pit them against sexism. And we're going to pit them against nationalism. That's really insightful. Pit them against the military danger. Yeah. And I think that's another subject. Say if we're talking about the original series now. I think it introduced one of our favorite subjects very head on, very initially too. And that's through the use of the character Spock and the character Kirk. And that is that question that we tend to always come back around to when we're doing this podcast. And that is, what does it mean to be a human being? Yeah. Because in the Star Trek universe, human beings are on the verge of wiping themselves out. There's been an apocalypse. Then one scientist comes around and is able to like create a warp engine. And because of that, we get picked up by the Vulcans and we're introduced to alien species through a species, the Vulcans, who if you're not familiar with Star Trek, which I hope you have at least some familiarity, you should watch some Star Trek. It's great. Um, yeah. They meet the Vulcans and the Vulcans are like humans in most respects, but more advanced. And it's seemingly more advanced because they've actively abandoned the use of their emotions through culture. They've cultured out emotion and they do all of their thinking and everything based entirely on logic and reason as best they can. And it, it has made their society advanced. The relationship they form with human beings who act with reason sometimes, but also with passion almost as often, or maybe more often, it's hard to say. And Kirk, the main character, is very much like that. He's very much human in that respect in that he has emotion. You know what I mean? He's not afraid to be a human being. <laughs> he's, he has a ton of swagger. He's a lunatic, bro. He's a lunatic. Kirk is, really represents humanity, I think, pretty well because, except I wish humanity were a little bit more like Jim Kirk <laughs> in the keeping it together department. <laughs> He's a womanizer. He gets drunk. I love it. That's the thing I kind of like about the show is that it's not afraid to paint the human characters as human. 
They're flawed characters. Kind of what helps develop that line we're talking about, like what it means to be a human being. Should we try to abandon some of our emotions? Should we try to act more with more with reason? Or is our balance of reason to passion good as it is? Oh, yeah. That's a really serious question that the show asks a lot. Season one, episode four of the original series is called The Enemy Within. And it was written by Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend. That is an episode where there's a some kind of a transporter malfunction and we get the evil Kirk. I may be screwing that premise up, but yeah, we get an evil Kirk. Within that, it's great because we're looking at exactly that question, that yin yang right. of the evil part of us. And can we ever really get rid of it? Right. And those real moral questions. My brother really got into the original series when he was in college. And he's like, dude, I figured out, I think he was super stoned one night. And he's like, dude, I figured out how you got to watch the original series. He's like, you got to watch it. Like they are escaped lunatics who, <laughs> who escaped the asylum and stole a starship and took off because the shit they pull is so yeah. crazy compared to, you know, how much more subdued the characters were in Next Generation. <laughs> the 60s were a wild time, you know what I mean? And... <laughs> The culture that Roddenberry was hanging out with, you know, they were a hip LA culture. I mean, he already lived in LA and he became a show creator. Yeah, yeah. He had Harlan Ellison writing him episodes. He was hanging out with some far out people. Listen to this, Winston. Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura, right? she was considering leaving the show. She was like, yeah, I have other opportunities now. I'm going to leave the show. You know who called her? And said, don't leave the show. Who's that? Martin Luther King. Oh my goodness. Yeah, see. And said, no, you're too important of an icon to leave the show. You got to stay on the show. You want to talk about how big Roddenberry was and how big this show was? I mean, that's crazy. As far as cultural. Right. You mentioned they had the first black and white kiss on television. And it was a big moment. And it pushed a lot of buttons. Oh my gosh, yeah. But that's what you were talking about before. Like Roddenberry just kind of being too bad. Sorry, not sorry. Kind of having that attitude when he was producing. The, the show, I think, really does come through a lot. And it's great. When you're daring to talk about these ideas, you do have to be daring. You can't really half measure ideas like this. Dude, an artist has to ask the questions and go to the places that most of us are not willing to go to. Otherwise, what's the damn point? Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of art. Right. And that's what he did. He was like, you know what? I have this platform. We are going there. One, uh, one interesting tidbit before we leave the original series was that the budget for the series was so low that they couldn't afford to even show the Enterprise landing on planets or even taking shuttles. They're like, we can't build a shuttle. We can't well, do this. You know that. Yeah. That's where they came up with the teleport. They're like, okay, we got to figure something else out, dude. How rad is that? You know, necessity being the mother of invention, man. That's rad. That is one of the cooler tidbits of information I've ever heard about Star Trek. This is why people tune into the show right here. It's because of cool little facts like that from Nick the Tooth. Uh, (laughs) I will eat edibles and go down the rabbit hole of anything sci-fi for freaking 12 hours straight. My wife will be like, what are you doing now? When are you going to drive your van to Colorado, man? Do it. Oh, I'm coming soon, dude. I cannot wait. One of these days. No, it's going to happen sooner than later. I mean, I'm just kind of waiting for right now. The climate is so nice up here. Oh, absolutely. It's going to start raining here like in about four weeks. As soon as that happens, we're going to stay here until then. Then we're out of here. We're going to Work Island, though. Ah, man. On Friday. Living the life. Yeah, I'm stoked dude. about that. I'm going to film it all. And, and just on a side note, I'm starting like a YouTube channel of our travels. Awesome. Shit, so I'll keep you updated on that. 
Anyways, let's talk about the Kirk movies that came Before next. we move on to the movies, I think we should at least mention the animated series, which, which some people call Star Trek Season 4. Oh my god. And it very, I think very much captures the far-out spirit of the original series pretty well. If you haven't seen an episode, I think you could find them online. Dude, I used to watch when I was a little kid. I loved the animated series. Oh my gosh. They're the best. It's really good. It's, I mean, you know, if you like Star Trek and you haven't seen the animated series, do yourself a favor. It's from 73 and 74, like four or five years after the original series was canceled. The first reincarnation of Star Trek, I guess the second since the, the pilot had a total, almost entirely different cast, possibly the third incarnation of Star Trek on a long road. <laughs> okay, so let's go on. Yeah, to the yeah, the series was good. The animated series was good. I recommend it also. Yeah. Let's go on to the Kirk era movies. You know, I saw them all. The thing for me, and I hate to be like this, was as a kid, you know, this was right after uh, Star Wars, you know, a few years after Star Wars, the Star Trek movies. I, and, I, and I'm sure that's what spurred it was the studios were probably like, hey, look at Star Wars. Let's start doing Star Trek movies. But I just could not get over the, the Kirk hair piece. William Shatner, <laughs> at that point, I, was, I just kept looking at him. Oh, man, going, he could never live it down. Shatner could. Come on. Yeah, never. He still hasn't to this day. No, I don't think so either. There, It's like so distracting. Oh, my God. Yeah, for sure. When he appears on The Simpsons, when they do old Star Trek movies on The Simpsons, he's always got garter belt or something on or like a cummerbund holding his waist in place because he's gotten so... <laughs> he always just looks so crestfallen, like he's so bummed out to be making a movie. Speaking of another tidbit with the cumbersome cummerbund to hold in his waist or garter belt, whatever it was, was that he... the rumor is is that he was so bummed by the fact that that's uh leonard nimoy was six one and taller than him <laughs> that he wanted to wear lifts in his shoes but when he wore lifts it made his stomach puff out so oh no <laughs> oh no shatner <laughs> anyways let's not beat up on him anymore <laughs> I would definitely get my picture taken with William Shatner, 100%. Let me make it clear. I'm a fan, despite everything. Yeah. I'm a fan. Me too. I love them. The original movies, I saw Star Trek. I'll be honest with you. I probably didn't watch the motion picture until I was probably 24 or 25. And I probably only have seen it once. I think I've only seen it once. The first one? The very first one, yes. Uh, the very yeah. first film. That was a cool premise. I think that was the one where, this is where I'm totally going to probably screw it up. I think that was the one where we had sent a uh, probe out into space right with the, that gold disc and all that crap and uh yeah what was the name of them? that's the voyager spacecraft yeah so we sent the voyager out there and they went out there and uh it actually reached an alien and all that crap but it was cool it was all right i mean i i remember being a kid and expecting star wars and i was just kind of, ah. i think the reason i hesitated to watch the the motion picture for so long was because i'd always heard it didn't live up to people's expectations didn't live up to mine i like the wrath of Khan. oh man but- who doesn't like the Wrath of Khan. We're going to just totally gloss over Star Trek the motion picture here. And again, if we've gotten the details wrong on this, sorry. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to linger on it, but I watched it when I was 24, 25, and I remember liking it. Okay. I remember thinking it was pretty good. I can't remember the plot mm-hmm. that well, but I do love the second movie in the series, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. That movie is yeah, fantastic. That was dope. 
And the you know that was based on an original. They brought back Ricardo Montalban, who played Khan on the original series, and that was based on the Enterprise had come across a sleeper ship where these beings were like held in cryo, whatever, and they were sleeping, and they woke them up, and they were super beings. Khan was a super being. He was yeah. like super cunning, and he was trying to take over the Enterprise, like an engineered organic weapon, basically. Yes, he was a badass man. He was. So so cool. I love him. He was a great villain. I was going to say, it's one of those things where it's true that a story is really only as good as the villain. And, you know, you've got Darth Vader and you've got No Country for Old Men. You've got Shagor and, you know, Michael Myers. Wherever you have just an incredible villain, it's like, oh yeah, that's a great story. And certainly a memorable villain. That movie didn't shy away from being a little over the top. Ricardo Montalban himself, his performance is definitely a little bit over the top. And, you know, obviously notoriously Shatner's performance with the, the <laughs> but it makes it great actually that's one of the better parts of the movie is how bombastic it is it especially fits for the time I think it came out in 1980 it did I think it came out in 1980 mm-hmm. 82 for Wrath of Kong was 82 so that came out in 82 and I think it really fit the time and a lot of other sci-fi movies were starting to move towards cyberpunk sort of feel that was starting to come into style that's so right it had to yeah be- we had Blade Runner Blade Runner that year so that's a great movie if you haven't seen that one definitely check it out and the other movies mm-hmm. all the Kirk era films that came out in the 80s and in the 90s into the early 90s. Fry on Futurama says it best. All the movies average out to be pretty good. (laughs) So, you know, they're good. I mean, some of them were bad. (laughs) You know, some of them were good. Some were decent. You know, nothing that I'm like, wow, greatest movie ever. Yeah, I don't don't think any of them ever measured up to being, wow, that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. I don't think you'd walk away from any of them wishing you hadn't watched the movie. I guess that's how I would describe any of this movie. You can watch all of these movies and not like have buyer's remorse. So definitely check them out, I would say as well. The next incarnation after that happened was The Next Generation. You want to take the lead on Next Generation? The best. For me, when The Next Generation started, you know, it was like trepidatious after the movies. And I'm just going to give my subjective experience with it. But I was, I was really like, yeah, let's see how this is. And man, it just, for me, it fired on all cylinders. I loved it. It really wasn't bombastic, like you were saying, that that whole attitude of the first series or the movies. It was interesting because the original series has a place in my heart. I'll go back sometimes and watch the show. But The Next Generation, man, you think about it, how he pulled that off and created something that to me was even greater than the original was amazing. For me, at least, that was my I couldn't agree with you more. He did that thing that we were describing where you think, how could I improve upon the utopia that I've created in the first one? He's like, I know. The people could be even more dedicated. People there could be even more focused on making everything great for everybody. Yeah, doing the right thing and being, yeah, more level-headed and more emotionally balanced. And I think that idea is reflected in the change of captains. The captain, in Star Trek, a lot of people think the captain makes the series. And there's an ongoing debate about who's a better captain, Kirk or Picard. I'll settle the debate for you. It's Picard. That's my take on that. And obviously you're allowed to disagree. Tooth, you're allowed to disagree. Anybody's allowed to disagree. No, brother, I agree. I mean, if I was boarding one of those ships, I would be looking at the Enterprise and being like, this motherfucker might eject me out of the <laughs> airlock at some point because he's a psychopath. <laughs> Who knows what's going to get yeah, in his yeah, head. Exactly. You yeah, know? He's, he's a little too, a little too loosey-goosey for me, man. And yeah. For sure. And that's why I really liked Picard is because you almost never see Picard resort to using 
physical force almost ever. I know he's like an older guy portrayed as being a little older than Kurt. He's got a bad heart or at least a robot heart. The big difference in his characters because how many times does Picard punch someone on the next generation? <laughs> I know. I mean, not well, very know, many. Not very many. I think that that trait is so endearing in a way because, you know, when Spock in that Enemy Within episode that I talked about with the evil Kirk, it was in that episode that they wanted Spock to punch somebody and Leonard Nimoy was like, no, he's too advanced for that. And that's when he came up with the Vulcan nerf pinch. Yeah. That kind of carried over into the next generation where maybe Roddenberry was like, you know what? I'm going to even this out a little more. I'm going to be a little more realistic. Picard's just a way more level-headed approach. But besides that, Picard also is totally fearless. It's super rational. I'll be a fan of Patrick Stewart forever for various other reasons as well. He's compassionate. He's kind. You know, that's one of my favorite things is that he really, really listens to everybody. Yeah. If the captain does indeed make the show, it's a strong case for the next generation being the very best series because even now I still think of Picard as being the best captain. Yeah. I'm biased. I grew up with the next generation. I think that's the big strength of the show. The other thing I really think the show does well is it carries over that what does it mean to be human storyline with probably my all-time favorite Star Trek character, Data. (laughs) Since a kid, I've kind of been obsessed with the idea of Data and what he goes through. That's the essential pull of science fiction as we talk about all the time is this guy's struggling to find out how to use his emotions or try to understand what emotion means and intuition and all the other things that being a human being entail. It's such a struggle for him because he just has completely outsider's view of these things. He's like the reverse Spock, the bizarro Spock in the sense that Spock had to learn to control his emotions. Data didn't understand. He intellectually understood what emotions were, but he had not experienced them until one of the later movies. Yeah, he eventually does. Data eventually does get to experience emotion. We even get an evil Data, his brother, Lore, another excellent character. I love that. Yeah, I love Lore, yeah. Data and Lore and how much thought went into that about the good versus the evil, sort of a dig on religion a little bit there, religion versus science. I think that's really telling of Roddenberry's attitude. Yeah. I think that's kind of a healthy attitude in science fiction. A healthy attitude in life, not just as a science fiction fan, but to try to rid yourself of lore. Don't get rid of lore, of course. I don't mean that, but just don't let it being a controlling aspect of your decision making. Yeah, yeah. Try to make your decisions as rationally as possible with the available information you actually have. Don't rely on something you've heard, something might have happened. Yeah. Were there any hiccups or anything that you were aware of when they were getting the next generation off the ground? Rodberry initially declined to be involved. He eventually accepted the role as creator to make all the creative decisions because he was unhappy with the early conceptual work that the studio presented to him when he wasn't involved. Okay, so I heard that Roddenberry didn't want any part of another television series for Star Trek. Is that true? They approached... Rod Berry, he declined to be involved. Then he saw early conceptual work for the show, and he was really unhappy with the way, the direction they were going. He was like, okay, I'll come on board, and I'll be the show creator and make all the creative decisions, and then came on board, and it went forward after that. Even following in the footsteps of Star Trek, the original series, which was itself groundbreaking, Star Trek The Next Generation, once again, was a groundbreaking series. Yeah doubling down on the same ideas. So good. So good. I love Deanna Troy. She was one of my favorite freaking characters. Oh my gosh. The idea of empath being counsels to the captain is such a great idea. It's such a utopian idea. 
to have someone who could be like, well, what are they feeling? What are they feeling over there? It's such a thing necessary for a human captain because so many of their decisions are based on their feelings. Yeah, and it's wild because it's something that I'm hearing in the lexicon now where people are currently like, yeah, I feel like I'm a little more empathic now. I'm a little more, I'm like, you're an empath? And like, yeah, I'm an empath. And I'm like, that's so Star Trek. I can't believe that 30 years after Next Generation debuted, people are using that term all the time now. And I don't know if it's coming from Star Trek, but that's what I always think of. I'm always like, yeah, Deanna Troy, she was so cool. And her mother, Luxana Troy, is played by Broadberry's wife. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, she was cool, man. She was really dope. She's like a seductress, a little bit wild type uh, lady. She was played by Majel Barrett. I think I'm saying her name right. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) She plays uh, Luxana Troy, Deanna Troy's mother, who's a little bit of a troublemaker. She also plays the voice of the ship's computer. I think for several series after the original, I think she played a lot of ship's computer voice for different series moving forward. Even on the J.J. Abrams movies, which came later, I think she still does. Yeah. You know what else is really cool is that as you look at the next generation, Roddenberry was obviously tasked with, okay, I got to come up with another series here. They're about to run my property into the ground if I don't take hold of this. What's interesting to me is that he took Spock and he said, okay, I'm going to create the yin-yang of Spock, right? I'm going to create data. I've got Kirk and he's just crazy and a lunatic womanizer. I'm going to create the yin-yang of that. But what's really cool is that... That then if you look at Riker, Riker was basically Kirk, right? Riker, yeah, yeah, yeah. Has- Riker is like Kirk light. Yes, yes. If people were more like Riker than they are like Kirk, Riker is not only an acceptable, I mean, he is definitely a little bit wild. He's definitely more likely to punch somebody that Picard is. And a womanizer. And, you know, yeah, he's, he is Kirk light, right? He's a womanizer, but he never grabs on women the way Kirk did. But he wasn't. No, that's true. That's true. There were some really great moments. Actually, my wife and I were watching some Next Gen the other day, and there's some really great moments where Riker displays really healthy boundaries, like understands boundaries in a really healthy way. And he has some really good lines to that effect, too. I think of Riker as being a pretty exemplary. He could be a little, uh, I don't want to tell him to settle down. I'm not trying to. But I, that's not necessarily the most responsible way to, to behave. I don't I guess I am slut shaming. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to. <laughs> slut shaming. You're slut shaming Riker. I love it. I love it. I love it. And then you had uh, Georgie LaFord. I loved his character too, man. And he was like blind. You had someone who was handicapped, right? That was dope. Yeah, and besides that, he also was just such a cheeky, apple-cheeked, gee-golly kind of guy. Like he's just like, man, I just enjoy every day. He like has a whistle while he works kind of guy. Jordy also really represents the best of people in such a great way. You know, I mean, he's awkward sometimes. You alluded to him being having a handicap, but in a way, his handicap is an advantage because his visor gives him the ability to see so many things that humans we can't, can't see. see. Yeah. We just can't. No, and I think that's an amazing lesson, you know, in life is that we have struggles or we have shortcomings, and so many people out there are able to turn those shortcomings into strengths. And I find that to be so, so inspiring. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's who have differences, d- disabilities, things like that. And it's an important message that ableism is not helpful, man. People who are differently abled absolutely have tons of value. It shouldn't even be a matter of question. Make allowances for people to be different. That's all. Yeah. No two ways about it. I was telling this story the other day. It's such a digression. But when I was in law school, one of the guys that I was in school 
trouble with was actually handicapped. He was paralyzed from the waist down. He had a wheelchair. And when he was in law school, we were talking one day at lunch and I'm like, so what do you think you're going to do when you get out? He goes, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm like, what? What do you mean you know exactly what you're going to do? He goes, man, I'm going to be a lawyer who represents people that are hurt in accidents. And I just sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the most genius thing in the world. You're going to be in the courtroom advocating for people. You're going to win every single case, you know? And it's so true. It's like, you have to look at, you know what? This is not going to be a disadvantage for me. This is going to be something that's going to be awesome. And that was his attitude. And from then on, I just loved the dude, man. I was like, man, you're freaking rad, dude. Chinese use the same word for crisis that they do opportunity, at least. That's what I've heard on The Simpsons. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's true. That's what nerds we are, is that we get most of our cultural information from The Simpsons. I love it. In Futurama. (laughs) My mind has certainly been shaped by the media. If we're just hanging out, and you guys are just hanging out with us while we shoot the shit about Star Trek and various other sci-fi topics, then yeah, you guys probably had your minds shaped by the media that you took in as well. So hopefully you guys... Oh my gosh, man. If I was to try and explain to an alien what my childhood was like, it was like, well, I sat in front of the television after school with a bowl of cereal and like Fruit Loops and I would just sit there and eat and watch Star Trek and Gilligan's Island and, you know, Simpsons and all that shit. No shame about it. I really do love this era of media where you can be so selective now about what media you actually take in. I think that's at least (sighs) the healthier direction because I can't stand watching regular television because commercials drive me insane. Yeah, me too. Me too now. Infinite Worlds is ad-free because look, I'm a business person, so I respect that ads have to exist. You know what I mean? I'm trying to sell my magazine and I respect that ads have to exist, but there should be parks like in a city where this this is not the place for the ads here. This is like a safe space for ads. Oh, so true. When I'm trying to watch something that's absorbing my mind, if I'm watching whatever's, you know, if I'm watching Star Trek or whatever, the commercial break, it just absolutely takes me out of that space, destroys the illusion. Obviously, that's the medium by which these shows were paid for and they made it all happen. But you wouldn't think in the middle of a book, you're really into it in the fourth chapter. Like, oh, I can't wait. I'm on a cliffhanger. And then all of a sudden you turn the page and you're forced to yeah, exactly. read through Two three different. pages of ads. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, unlike at printed ads. And that's the thing. Even in Infinite Worlds, like, you know, it's a magazine. So you could always just flip to the next page if you didn't want to see it ad. Yeah. It destroys the aesthetic. It destroys the mental place you're in. It's interesting because that's a real cultural change, you know, in the last 10 years is that we don't have to now. Yeah. When yeah. you watch Star Trek The Next Generation or the original series, we're watching it on Netflix. All advertisements are by nature trying to brainwash you. They are yeah. trying to convince you to do something. And I mean, obviously- Trying to make you feel inadequate. So you yeah. buy their product to shore up that inadequacy you feel inside. The inadequacy I aim for, for my target audience for Infinite Worlds is loneliness. Because I think that's something we all experience. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's about all the time we have. This is a two-part episode, so we'll come back with the second half of the Star Trek episode next time. Yeah. So until then, you guys uh, live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, my brother.